one of my all-time favorite preachers and writers who, who's now with the Lord, he, he used to say so often when he came to a passage of Scripture, when he got up to preach, or even in his writings, he'd, he'd say, this is one of the most important bits of the Bible, or this is one of the most amazing Scriptures. And I remember either listening to him or reading him and thinking, but you say that every time. And uh, it's so true, isn't it, when, when we read God's Word. And when Neil gave me this passage and I read this, I was going, wow, when I read it and started to think about it. And then I was going, oh dear, because there's so much in here. But let's read it together. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. I'm reading from the NIV, it might be slightly different, but I'm sure you'll be able to follow it in the translation you're reading. This is Paul. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life and who is equal to such a task. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul has a mission. He has a purpose. He has something that is all-consuming in his life, and that is to preach the gospel, particularly in places where nobody else has ever preached the gospel, in unreached places. That's Paul's heart. It's more dear to him than his life. He said that when he was leaving the leaders at Ephesus and he wasn't going to see them again. He said, I don't count my life dear to me. I just want to finish this task that God has given me, the task of preaching this gospel and preaching it where others hadn't preached. At the start of our passage here, he gets to a place called Troas. Nobody's preached there before. Perfect for Paul. He finds the Lord 
has opened a door for him, which is amazing. And then he leaves. He leaves. What's going on, Paul? He's so deeply concerned about these Corinthians that he's writing to in the passage that we've read. He's so deeply concerned about these people. He can't think about anything else. He can't really do anything else until he gets news that they're okay after the first letter he sent to them. And so he leaves looking for Titus to get news from them. It doesn't really compute, does it? You know, I can see that's what happened, but somehow you think, Paul, this is not you. What's going on? It's just an indication to me that with all his passion, with all his determination, with all his certainty about what he should be doing, he's not really in control. He's not really in control. People look at him would have thought, there's a man who knows what he wants, knows what he's going to do, he's certain about it. There's a man who knows what he's about. But he's not in control. Something else or someone else is in control in Paul's life. And I think he then explains this in this most amazing sentence. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. He explains it by using two metaphors, two striking, even shocking word pictures of his life and ministry. He describes, this is my life, this is what's happened to me, this is where I am, in two pictures that he gives to us. And they are quite shocking. So hold on to your seats as I explain them to you, because they are shocking, really. And we need to understand what he's saying. And then we just need to try and understand the passage and, and the main things that he's saying before I then try, well, I want to, I'm going to, hopefully, challenge us with some questions about where we're up to and about our lives. But first of all, you might want to argue with me about those, but you can't really argue about this. I'm just going to explain what Paul is saying. I'm not asking you to believe it at this point. Just want you to understand what Paul is saying. Okay. The first picture then is Paul describes himself as in Christ's triumphal procession. This is the picture that Paul draws here is of some important Roman general who's been on some military campaign somewhere, has won a great victory and is returning to Rome. And he's at the front, riding his horse in all his regalia, looking splendid. And his army are all around him. And behind him, in chains, being taken either to death or to slavery, are those that he has captured, those that he has conquered. This is not Paul leading the procession. You can read this and mistake it and think, that Paul is marching along in triumph. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, God has conquered me, and now, as a spectacle, he leads me in Christ's triumphal procession. The only other place that this same picture is used is in, two, uh, sorry, is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. 
where it says this, of God. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So through the cross, to uh, Colossians 2.15 says, God disarmed spiritual forces and spiritual powers and made a spectacle of them, led them in his triumphal procession. God leads evil spiritual forces in triumph, having defeated them and their rebellion through the cross. How can that be? How can the cross be a victory that defeats evil enemy spiritual forces? When human rebellion first began, Adam and Eve failed to trust God. They failed to be obedient to God. They failed to believe that God was for them and that God, what God was offering them and saying to them was good for them. They believed a lie. They were deceived by spiritual forces that said, God isn't for you. This, what he's saying is not right. And so disobedience began. In a perfect situation, they failed. But coming into a fallen world, Jesus succeeded. He was obedient. He followed the will of his Father. And despite all the efforts of the powers of evil, he was obedient and trusted his Father, even to the death on the cross. And in this way, he defeated this enemy that brings rebellion and that brings rejection of God's way. And he opened the way for others to leave their rebellion as well and to become obedient to God. So the picture that Paul gives is of this Roman general leading these forces that he's conquered. But it's a picture of what God did in Christ when he defeated his enemies, when he defeated spiritual forces and led them in triumph as well. The difference is, of course, that Paul is in Christ. Paul is loved. Paul is forgiven. Paul is a willing and joyful slave. You can imagine, can't you, that picture with that general. You can imagine the dejection. You can imagine the shame on the faces. You can imagine the, the absolute awfulness of, uh, of the situation of those people being dragged along. Paul must have seen that and thought, how dreadful that is. And then another time he must have thought, that's me. That's me. I've been taken captive like that. My life has been ended and changed like that. That's what God has done for me. But he's in a procession of smiling, joyful captives, glad to be under new ownership. So that's the first picture in Christ's triumphal procession. But in one sentence, that's not enough for Paul. He then says and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. If you read through the Bible, you will find in the first four books of the Bible, you will find a phrase that appears over and over again. And it's speaking of the burning smell of animals. That's what it speaks about, the burning smell of animals and grain in sacrifice. And it says this about the burning smell of animals and grain that it's an aroma pleasing to the Lord. 
Over and over again, when these sacrifices were offered in accordance with what God had said, it says it's an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Now, this is a concept that's far too much for many who reject Christianity. And the truth is, it's far too much today for many Christians as well. But we're not going there today. Maybe another day. But it's far too much for those who reject Christianity. One writer who rejects Christianity completely says this about this awful picture of the burning smell of animals pleasing God. He says, an all-perfect God would not find the aroma of burning animals and grain pleasing. However, he says, the central concepts of Judaism and Christianity are dependent on these verses. He's right. He's right about that fact. Others speak disdainfully, don't they, of the primitive idea of God's being appeased by sacrifice. But in Ephesians 5 verse 2 it says this, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's a concept that's biblical. It's a concept that is there in the scriptures. It's a concept that's at the center of how God redeems us and makes us right with himself. Christ loved us, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sweet smell, an aroma that was pleasing to God. God is pleased with the obedient offering of Christ as a sacrifice in our place. He offered himself as our substitute, taking our punishment and so satisfying the justice of God. And that sacrifice was like those Old Testament sacrifices. It rose to God. It pleased God. It satisfied his justice. This is how one writer puts it and then explains why Paul is using it about himself. Because Paul says, we are an aroma to God. That's what he says. This is what one writer says about it. So when Christ died for sinners, it was like a fragrant offering that was very pleasing to God. Now here is Paul standing in the place of Christ as a missionary and suffering like Christ in the service of his conquering Lord. And he says, we are the aroma of Christ to God. In other words, when we suffer as missionaries in the service of Christ, it's like Christ suffering for the lost. And God smells this fragrance of sacrificial love and it pleases him. So that's what Paul's saying. I was in rebellion. I was going my own way. I was doing my own thing. God came and conquered me and led me as a spectacle and now takes me along as his captive. And as he does that, I suffer. I work for him. And I, uh, I'm in pain for him at times and things go wrong in my life, but I carry on. But just like Jesus, that is an aroma that pleases God. It's a sacrifice that is offered to God. And it pleases him. Just like Jesus, my Lord, suffered and died and was in pain for me, I will suffer and if necessary, die and give my life for him. God is pleased with that. But God, Paul says, God is not the only one that smells that sacrifice, that senses that sacrifice. It's not just God that sees it. Other people as well. And this knowledge of the sacrificial love 
of Christ, brought by the sacrificial efforts of his people, causes two different reactions. One group, smell that, see that, and it's an aroma of death for them. Because they see it, they see the connection with Christ, and they reject it. And they reject it. And if you reject God's one way of being right with him, if you reject the sacrifice that pleases him, that satisfies his justice and brings reconciliation, if you reject that, then the smell is of death to death. But there are those who see it and accept the sacrificial love of Christ and so are brought to him. I did warn you, didn't I? That they were startling and in many ways quite shocking pictures, all in one sentence. But quite honestly, that's what Paul is saying. Now you can decide whether you're going to accept that or reject it and find something nicer to believe in or not. But I find it difficult to think how you could interpret it in any other way. That's what Paul is actually saying. These two pictures of his life and ministry. God conquered him when he was an enemy. Now leads him around as a spectacle in triumph. And as he suffers to make Christ known, just as Christ suffered so he could be known, the smell, the aroma, the sacrifice pleases God and has an effect on others. Some smell life and others smell death and die. No wonder Paul says, who is equal to such a task? Who is up to this? Who can do this? Who can live like this? Who can serve like this? That's what Paul says. He then goes on to defend himself because he's been accused of doing this for profit. People are saying he's in it for what he gets out of it. He's been accused of being insincere. He's been accused of being hypocritical. He's been accused of never being sent by God at all. He's been, the, the people are saying, he didn't come with any letters recommending him. Where's his references? Who is this guy? Where's his references? So Paul has to defend himself. And now, even though you may have had enough already, now I want to challenge us with some questions based on that understanding of what's going on in this passage. I want to direct some questions to us. And the first question I want to ask you is this. Have you been defeated and captured by Christ? Have you been defeated and captured by Christ? Have you been shown up and shamed for your previous rebellion and indifference to him? Have your plans and has your life been messed up by Jesus? I'm guessing you've never been asked that question before. Has Jesus messed up your life? That's what happened to Paul. He was certain. He was right. He was living a particular way. He was determined. And God messed it up. Messed it up. And led him in chains as a spectacle. Made him suffer so that Christ would be known. I'm guessing in some minds at the moment there's a, there's a feeling of, hold on hang on a minute, I, was, I came for a cup of tea, for sing a few nice songs, to have a bit of friendship. What's, what's going on? You are welcome 
Believe me. Believe me. I mean it with all my heart. If that's why you've come, you are welcome. You are welcome to sing the songs with us. You are welcome to have a cup of tea. We want to be your friends. Speak to others if you can't stand speaking to me after this. There are others here who will love you. Yeah? We are so pleased you are here. But something else is going on. There's only one reason we're here. There's only one reason we sing songs. There's only one reason we drink tea together. It's because Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. Because he is declared Lord of all. Because he is calling every man and woman on this earth to submit to him and to follow him. And I believe that because none of us would do without him, I believe he takes some, he captures some, he puts them in chains, he leads them in his procession, he causes them to suffer for his name. Let me put it another way, because that might be just too much for you. Let me put it another way. Have you got Jesus, or has Jesus got you? Have you got Jesus, or has Jesus got you? Is he the missing piece in your jigsaw of life? That's the way he's often presented in Christian circles too, yeah? Oh, you've got this, you've got that. Your life is, is great, but you, there's a missing piece. Jeez, if, you're, if only you had Jesus as well, your jigsaw would be complete. And it would be really good. It would be nice. It'd be a shame if you don't, but it would be really good. If only you will. He could be the spiritual element that everyone needs. Is Jesus the missing piece in your jigsaw? Or is he your conquering Lord and Master? Now I know for Paul it was instant. It was dramatic. It was overwhelming. And many, in fact most of us, I'm guessing all of us here, have not had an experience like that. But, let me, let me put it this way for you. Let me put it this way. Is your view of being a Christian that it's about living well, being nice, doing your best, helping people, but all perfectly manageable, all under your control? Let me suggest that if that's your view of the Christian life, at its lowest level, if that's your view of the Christian life, you're missing it. You're missing it. There must be, even if you think that I am getting carried away, there must be a sense that someone else, not you, is now in control and ruling you. There must be that. Have you been defeated and captured by Christ? Have you accepted? Next question. Have you accepted why this is so? It's not just about living a happier life. It's not just about knowing that you're going to go to heaven when you die. It's about mission. It's to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Jesus everywhere. That's what it's about. That's why we've been called into this. That's why we are here. And it happens like this. We hear the truths and the facts about Jesus and who he is. It can't happen without that. This is not just a vague sort of faith. Uh, believe in something kind of thing. 
This is about the person of Jesus and there are truths that we need to understand and believe about him. That's where it begins. But then it moves on from that and we get to know him. And his life begins to influence us and to work in us. It's not like the ivy that grows up the tree clinging to the tree. That's not the connection. The connection is the vine and the branches. So the life from the vine flows into the branches. We're not just sort of closely connected to a religion and hanging on to it. The life of Jesus, as we know about him, hear about him, believe in him, his life begins to work in us. So that his trust in his Father, his obedience to his Father, perfect in his case, amazing and wonderful and, and stunning in his case, in my case, faltering and feeble and struggling and sometimes fighting against it, but it's there, it's there. There is this life of Christ working in us and change in us. We're not in this for what we get out of it. Paul was accused of that. Do you know, folks, if you want a picture of fallen human nature, think of this. The blood of Christ was hardly dry on the ground when somebody thought, I could make a living out of this. I could make something out of this. Yeah? There's people willing to uh, support. There's people willing to give. I, I could make a good living out of this. That's what Paul was accused of. But he was accused of it because that's what others were doing. That's what others were doing. We're not, we're not in this for what we get out of it. It may well cost us. In fact, it has to if we're going to be the pleasing aroma of Christ. It may cost us financially. It may cost us in time. It may cost us in comfort. It may cost us in peace of mind. It may cost us in disappointment as we witness and as we work with people and as we see them reject Christ and turn away or as we see them start to do well and then go back and it hurts. It hurts. It's painful. It may cost us in rejection, in persecution. For some here this morning even, it might mean full-time ministry. It might mean going on mission. It might mean sacrificing the life that you had planned. I'm guessing for most of us, it will mean being where we are each day. Living where we are each day. With this in mind. And living to please God and living to serve God in our everyday lives. And dealing with that sense of inadequacy that we often feel and that fear that grips us at times. But all of these things can be part of the offering that we bring, the aroma, the sacrifice that God can use in winning others to himself. Have you been captured by Christ? Do you know what it's about? Do you understand why? Do you know what it is to be in Christ? As Paul answers these objections, these criticisms, this is what he says. In Christ, so, so when he knows that they're telling him that he's in it for money or he should have letters of recommendation or all these other things, he says, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On, contrary, on the contrary, in Christ we speak 
before God in Christ. Paul's answer to those who criticize him is that he is in Christ. This is about position. It's not about experience. It's about our standing before God. It's not about feelings. It's about facts. As a believer, you are secure in Christ. Your identity, your security, your authority is in him. Once you were in Adam, a sinner, but now you are in Christ and there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Your life, your identity is wrapped up in him. And in that secure position in Christ, you can speak with sincerity. You can speak with honesty because you don't need to pretend. You don't need to pretend that you're something that you are not or that you've got something that you haven't. You can be who you are in Christ with the life of Christ working in you, with all that frailty, with all that difficulty, with all that fallenness still there, you can be in Christ serving him and living for him because your identity is in him. And we don't speak our own ideas. Paul said that he spoke before God. He didn't modify the message. He didn't change it to suit his audience. He knew he was only answerable to God. He knew that he was secure in Christ and he was prepared to live and to speak like that. Do you know that you are in Christ? And lastly, do you recognize that all of this is the work of the Holy Spirit? All of it is the work of the Holy Spirit. We spent time this morning just thinking about that and just asking for the Holy Spirit to come again and to renew us and to inspire us Again, as pa again, as Paul defends himself against those who are perhaps suggesting that he needs written references to prove his authority, he says the Holy Spirit has done the writing on our hearts and in your lives. And in saying that, he echoes God's promise in the Old Testament. You know, don't you, in the Old Testament, God wrote on tablets of stone. He wrote commandments. This is what you are to do. He wrote on tablets of stone. Nobody did it. Nobody kept it. Nobody could live up to that new covenant. So he promised a new covenant. And he said the new covenant is, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it in their hearts. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if you have any true faith, if you have any love for God, if you have any spiritual understanding, it did not grow naturally in your heart. The Holy Spirit has been at work. The Holy Spirit has been at work. And I'm not talking about the dramatic that Christians so often want to concentrate on when the Holy Spirit is mentioned. Unless somebody falls over, Unless there's some shaking or shouting going on, some people think the Holy Spirit has not been at work. Now, I'm not suggesting that when people fall over, that when people shout or, and when people shake, it's a sign that it's not the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that where there is anything of God, the Holy Spirit has been at work in our lives. And if we are going to serve him, and if others are going to come to know him through us, it will be the Holy Spirit. Paul said, we're not competent in ourselves. 
Our competence comes from him. He works through us. It's his power. It's his life that makes the difference. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Has he conquered you? Has he captured you? Are you his willing, willing slave? If so, have you seen the reason is so that you can suffer for him, so that you can serve him, and in that way spread the aroma of his knowledge? Do you see yourself secure in Christ, commissioned to serve him, no matter what others might think? Are you amazed that the Holy Spirit has chosen to work in your life and through you in others?